Thank you for that kind introduction and for your passion for the region and its people. Uh, Eid Mubarak all, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a great privilege for me to represent the United States in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We have worked to rebuild a relationship, a long and important long-standing relationship, one that was scarred by the events of 9-11, by policy differences in the decade between, and often strained by the many misconceptions between our two cultures. Now, I have had a unique career, at least by the standards of diplomats. I spent my first career in uniform service, and in that career I was surrounded by heroes that were willing to go into harm's way on a moment's notice. In my second career in service, I am again surrounded by heroes, heroes who live in uncertainty, who often live in harm's way, and they do that without a second thought. It is an understatement, but I'll say it anyway. I am honored to be in their presence. But first, let me take a step back. When I graduated from the Air Force Academy, I joined my comrades in arms to meet the threat of a competitive global power with ships, planes, and fielded armies. I pulled Zulu alert in Europe. Our focus was on the Fulda Gap. The Soviet Union was not only a military power, it was an aggressive economic ideology that competed with market capitalism. So for the 40 or so years of the Cold War, we tried to anticipate Soviet moves. Since I joined my colleagues in diplomacy, I, I find myself on the front lines again. Actually, I have a front row seat, trying to anticipate an evolving and profound shift in Middle East thought. That shift does not respond to our ships, planes, and armies. In fact, in many ways, this shift has little to do with us at all. We are watching an internal debate, a struggle for definition and redefinition, and a changing political dynamic in the region. It is a puzzle, even for those of us who watch it every day. Now, as I began my assignment in 2009, I took what the military calls as mission-type orders from President Obama's vision of a new beginning in the Islamic world, one that's based on shared interest, mutual trust, and mutual respect. I can tell you that expression has been my guiding concept over these last three years, and I can say definitively that the President is right. There are many more things that bind us than separate us. I would add to the President's statement, that is true even when it's hard to see. In the context of the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, for the past three plus years, we have directed our approach based on shared interest. And the results, well, they speak for themselves. We now have over 60,000 Saudi students studying in the United States and over a quarter of them are women. U.S. universities and colleges have professional relationships with every university in Saudi Arabia. Every Saudi medical center has some sort of partnership with an American medical center or teaching hospital. 
Our non-defense exports to Saudi Arabia have climbed double digits in each of the last three years. Agriculture exports alone increased 103% last year. Over 240 American companies have exported to Saudi Arabia for the very first time in the last two years. Our mill-to-mill relationship is sound, it is expanding, and U.S. military exports are at a record level. Moreover, we came out of the Arab Spring with a deeper understanding of ourselves and each other. The concept of mutual trust and mutual respect has paid great dividends. The U.S.-Saudi bilateral relationship is sound. Now, the first element of shared interest is business and trade. And it has been a singular focus of mine over these last three plus years. I must single out uh, the U.S. Commercial Service and our commercial counselor, Amr Kayani, his dedicated team of professionals and the Foreign Commercial Service. During 2012, they will lead 18 trade missions back to the United States. And we will host a like number of reverse trade missions of American businesses back to Saudi Arabia. I recently returned from leading a delegation to Men Expo International, the largest mining and mineral show, as U.S. businesses are keenly focused on this emerging sector in the Saudi economy. Further, we were heavily involved in two high-profile commercial events in Chicago and Atlanta, and we will continue our effort to bring businessmen and businesswomen together from the United States and the Kingdom. But that engagement is more than just trade numbers, as impressive as they are. Fully 80% of the American companies exporting to Saudi Arabia for the first time in these last two years are small to medium enterprises. They bring with them the skill set to engage small and medium enterprises in the kingdom, and that knowledge transfer will certainly benefit the growing private sector. Many people here in the States do not realize that American companies do have a competitive advantage, and that advantage is in the relationship. And in knowing what problems Saudi Arabia is desperately trying to solve. In both of our countries, it's all about jobs, jobs, jobs. American companies bring with them a lifelong commitment to training and education. They're well schooled in the principles of program management and program leadership, and they generally understand the disciplines of Lean and Six Sigma for staying competitive. These are the skills that Saudi companies are thirsting for in their desire to become competitive so as to create new jobs for this new generation of highly educated young people. The youth bulge is real. In Saudi Arabia, 60 to 65 percent of the population is 25 years or younger. The real spike is in the 10 to 14 year group. So the Saudi government and industry has about five years to find solutions for job creation and youth empowerment. This generation has grown up watching the youth of the region make demands on their governments, demands for responsiveness, for transparency and accountability. If governments do not find solutions, they could be in trouble. If you as a business 
have a value proposition that helps Saudi Arabia solve this employment challenge, then you will be in a competitive position. This is not a theory. It works. I had the opportunity last week to congratulate the CEO of EMD, Electromotive Diesels. Uh, it's now part of the Caterpillar company on a recent contract win for diesel locomotives. A little over two years ago, a previous executive was in my office bemoaning the reality that he was about to lose a competitive bid to another company, country based on cost. Even though we had provided advocacy to the ministry on his behalf, he was sure that the contract award would be on price. When I asked him for his value proposition, he had little to offer other than our locomotives are better than theirs. They lost. Fortunately, the Saudis agreed to take the winning entry on an approval basis for two years, so EMD had a chance. A new team came forward and we discussed at length what it takes to win. And the principles are fairly straightforward. First, find a partner in Saudi Arabia you can do business with for the next 30 years. Business in Saudi Arabia is a little like golf. Your best chance of a winning score is in finding the right partner. Not someone who claims to have the wasta to win you a contract, someone who's going to be in business with you for the long term. Second, anchor a footprint in the kingdom. Now many entities have tried to do this from Dubai, Abu Dhabi, even from the States, but the best model is to have a physical presence in the kingdom around a joint venture partner. The Saudi economy is larger than all of the other economies in the Gulf combined. If you follow the money, which you are taught to do in business, the path leads you to Riyadh. Third, focus on a domestic capability rather than simply delivering a product sale. In the case of EMD, the value proposition was not about selling the best locomotive. It was all about helping Saudi Arabia develop its domestic rail infrastructure and mature through training and education a system to manage that rail system through the creation of a Saudi-ized career in rail and transportation. Fourth, think about growing Saudi talent, not hiring Saudis. EMD was aggressive in seeking out Saudi students here in the United States for summer hire programs. Now as they graduate, EMD will bring them on for training with their company with the intent of starting them out as entry-level managers and engineers in the kingdom. They are starting a career, not just hiring on for a job. EMD did all this. They beat the competition. They won. Now other American companies are making a significant impact, not just on their businesses, but on the future of Saudi Arabia. ExxonMobil has a long tradition in the kingdom, and among their successes is a huge refinery in Yanbu, about two hours north of Jeddah. The workforce of this refinery is 92% Saudi, stretching across senior management all the way down to traditional blue-collar employees. ExxonMobil was into Saudiization before Saudiization was required. 
and I anticipate they will bring the same degree of professional management to the new refinery they are building in Jubail II. Similarly, Dow Chemical has teamed with Aramco on the Sadara project in Jubail, and they, like ExxonMobil, are focused on creating a cadre of businesses that can take some of these derivatives and turn them into products. This, by the way, is the key to the kingdom strategy called a knowledge-based economy. Start with something you know, which in the case of Saudi Arabia is upstream petroleum, then move downstream to refining, and Sabic has performed magnificently here, then on to product development where you create intellectual property, start businesses by taking their derivatives and making products, and all of this creates jobs. The kingdom is employing this model in other areas, and none so impressive as the joint venture between Alcoa Aluminum and Modern Mining. On the 12th of December, I will attend a ceremony in Rasalkir in the northern part of the eastern province where Alcoa and Modern will pour the first hot aluminum in just over three short years from the signing of a joint venture agreement. It's a massive facility, including a smelting plant and rolling mills that will turn bauxite from the mines of northern Saudi Arabia into sheet aluminum. In addition, they're lining up companies to take that sheet aluminum and turn it into products in the kingdom. To their great credit, Alcoa has focused from the very beginning on corporate social responsibility, and their example, echoed by many other American companies, is making a difference in the future of the kingdom. Similar success story can be found in our agriculture trade, where our agriculture trade officer, Dr. Tawid Al-Safi, did a magnificent job of opening markets for U.S. wheat exports and breaking down long barriers for entry into products like seed potatoes and beef. As a result, our agriculture exports have doubled in the last year, and due to long-term contracts, I expect continued success. Our mill-to-mill -mill relationship has always been strong, owing to the decades-long successes of both Yusumedim and OPM Sang. In addition, the stand-up of OPM MOI three years ago has established a third leg in this important relationship, but this time focused on first the facility security force, but later on a myriad of initiatives in the Ministry of Interior to mature process and procedures for engaging with the very various agencies of our own government. Now certainly the success of our military sales, especially in the last year, speak to the closeness of this relationship. But I would remind the audience that Saudi Arabia has always been a reliable customer for sophisticated military equipment, and it supports our strategic objectives as well as theirs. Nowhere has the, shared, the vision of shared interest been more present than in education. As I mentioned earlier, we have around 60,000 Saudi students in the United States, and I take pride in partnering with Dr. Modi, who you will see later today, and the other professionals at the Saudi Arabian Cultural Ministry for their tireless effort in the support of these students and their families. I would also give a special shout out to the mission here for their efforts in opening medical training 
in education here in the states which have often been closed. Now, by the way, education does not count in our trade numbers, but it is important. And while I'm reluctant to do math in public, if you multiply 60,000 by 100,000 a year stipend per year, that represents an annual investment of about $6 billion into our education system. It is good for us as well as the Saudis. On our end, our education office works tirelessly to prepare students for their experience here and to educate potential students on the opportunity. As I've often said to Ambassador Adelil Jaber, I know of no area where two embassies work closer together. But the shared interest in education goes well beyond the students. Saudi Arabia is building new universities for men and women all over the kingdom. They have gone from eight to 26 universities in the last decade, and there are many U.S. universities engaged with each of these Saudi universities. We have professional exchanges, there's a boom market for the teaching of English, and we are beginning to see more in the way of student exchanges. Modern technology has made interactive education a reality, and I saw this firsthand in an engineering competition between Darul Hikma University, an outstanding women's college in Jeddah, and the University of Colorado. American companies are actively involved in the kingdom's effort to improve K through 12 curriculum. And keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is spending 26% of their budget on education. It's fair to say that American educators and American businesses are supporting in a big way this modernization effort. And there is in the kingdom a trend toward carefully managed reform. Saudi Arabia took note of the Arab Spring, and the government moved quickly, first with a $138 billion package in programs, all targeted toward the needs and concerns of its population. Now, I realize that there was criticism in some circles that saw the Saudi response as buying off the population with increased subsidies. But I have to say that the government's response was much more sophisticated than that. At the time, we in the embassy, we listed the top issues facing the Saudi population were jobs, housing, corruption, civil society, and the security apparatus. After the economic package was announced, the government respond publicly on each of these key issues. And in my view, they demonstrated a keen understanding of their own population and a responsiveness to the concerns of that population. Indeed, they continue on a course of measured modernization. There does seem to be a genuine understanding that change is inevitable. But this is still an extremely conservative society one steeped in traditional tradition and cultural constraints, and the government is attempting to manage the rate and pace of that change. But like all governments in the region, it continues to struggle with the forces of inertia that are intrinsic in traditional governing systems. Nonetheless, when there is a shared interest in modernization, 
we are quick to bring resources to assist. When the Ministry of Justice announced a plan to codify commercial law, we supported that effort with judicial training from here in the United States. I led a rule of law forum with the Minister of Justice back to the states last January, all aimed at assisting the evolution of their judicial system. As the Saudi Foreign Ministry has moved out on a number of areas, we have supported their efforts. In Yemen, Saudi Arabia played a significant role in brokering a GCC-led political transition agreement and continue to provide a leadership role in the Friends of Yemen and support to President Hadi's government. There has been, in the last few years, a trend toward multilateralism. Now, I say that with some reservation because I do not know if it's an experiment or a genuine move in that direction. Certainly, the GCC and the Arab League have been active in the last two year years in ways not previously seen. Most recently, Saudi Arabia has pushed the idea of a GCC union patterned after the EU. The Saudi support for Secretary Clinton's Security Cooperation Forum, first in Riyadh last spring and last month in New York, provides the venue for collaborative security discussions with all of the GCC nations. But something has changed. And it was reflected in the recent OIC summit called by King Abdullah last August. I spoke with many of the attendees, and some of them spoke of a difference in the atmosphere during the meetings. One individual in particular described it this way. The attendees had constituent concerns, and these concerns were expressed. They were not just representing their governments, there was a keen sense that they were representing their people. Plus, they had to go back home and explain their role to their people. The Arab Spring has produced a very real sense of accountability on the part of the leadership in the region. The key difference in the region is that whole populations are searching for dignity. They are beginning to see themselves as citizens, not subjects, and certainly are demanding that their governments be responsive. Plus, they want their governments to be transparent in the process. These populations are connected and they are engaged. Governments now have to respond to the concerns of their populations. For at least since the end of, the, of World War II, the operative word for governments was control. You control the media and the message. You control the population inside the borders. You control local and regional events. It was true for the governments in the region. It was true for U.S. policy as reflected in our outsized focus on military capability. But today, information is ubiquitous. A generation ago in Saudi Arabia, you got your information from one or more of four sources, parents, teachers, imams, or tribal leaders. Today, every teenager we meet has at least one Blackberry or iPhone with every app known to mankind. They are studying abroad or attending Saudi colleges with brand new dorm rooms. 
living with students from other villages with different views. We have gone from the dark days of the Cold War in Eastern Europe, where people would listen to their transistor radio to an era where Saudis get 24-hour newscasts and receive constant Twitter feeds. You cannot control the message any longer. You can only influence. So the real question of the day, does the United States and do the governments of the region have the necessary tools to be successful in an age of influence? Let me close by thanking the National Council for their leadership role in the great dialogue of the day. Janet and I have had the privilege of serving these last three years in an extremely dynamic region. Uncertainty surrounds us. The Arab Spring certainly has yet to give away to an Arab Spring break. But America's presence remains vital. Thank you very much. Just a few minutes. Is the microphone on? Can you hear me? I can. <laughs> um, Ambassador Smith says he can hear me. Uh, before Ambassador Smith uh, took up his posting in Saudi Arabia, uh, he had um, an extended period of preparation and going to visit uh, corporate leaders, uh, former diplomats, or existing diplomats who had served in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he was an avid student, as was his wife, Ms. Bres Janet Breslin uh, Smith, uh, an educator in her own right. And in the three that we were involved of these uh, uh, pre-departure uh, briefings, uh, we asked about uh, an idea that's been around for some 20 years, but only recently uh, seized, and uh, particularly so by Ambassador Smith. And you mentioned it in passing about various points uh, regarding the um, finding of Saudi Arabian students here in the United States before they return home and providing them with practical, actual, hands-on, empirical work experience, uh, to take them from the classroom, the lectures, the briefings, uh, the textbooks, uh, and the learning uh, on university campuses, to inside a corporate um, headquarters or branch office, or some other uh, aspect of the reality of the American partner to Saudi Arabian uh, commercial enterprises. Uh, this is more than a no-brainer, and its cost is, is a minimal. Uh, there are some challenges with the aerospace and defense industries where uh, classified material um, is to be protected. But in the engineering field, in the banking field, in the telecommunications field, in the education field, in the consulting and providing of services, in maintenance and operations and logistics fields, uh, the opportunities are limited only by the imagination. Could you elaborate a little bit on how this is going in your view uh, 
um, and I applaud Boeing in particular for seizing this opportunity and taking Saudi Arabian uh, students before they returned to the kingdom, uh, where they expected to know a lot more than actually they would know unless they have this practical hands-on experience. Well, it's going well, and, and, and due to the initiative and leadership of American firms, we're seeing some success. You mentioned Boeing, and Boeing has a landed presence as a uh, uh, MRO facility there in the uh, King Khaled Airport. Uh, so they have a foothold to do that. Uh, I mentioned EMD. Raytheon this last summer had a across-the-company uh, summer hire program for uh, Saudi students. Uh, they've had a 60-plus year presence there. So uh, the uh, Bill Swanson, the CEO of uh, Raytheon, clearly understands the value. But, but here's the issue. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia requires, in its Saudiization NICTAT program, uh, uh, the hiring of Saudis. So you can either sit back and complain because you can't find any Saudis, or you can go find them. Uh, and they're right here. Uh, uh, and offer them, uh, as we did in industry, between the sophomore and junior year, a summer hire program. And then you call that down to about half the second time. And by the time the, the summer hire program between junior and senior year, you've picked a two or three that you'd really like working for you. And then you offer them a job. You say, when you graduate, show up here at the front door, and uh, we'll go through a uh, three, six-month program to uh, understand the, the culture of this company. And, and then I'll uh, send you back home to Riyadh, Jeddah, Dammam, wherever, uh, in our facility on the ground floor as an entry-level engineering manager. And oh, by the way, this is the career you have to look forward to. Any student finds that appealing. Uh, so we found good response to that. And we're doing it in the kingdom as well. Uh, uh, once again, uh, you can either sit back and complain that, you know, about women's empowerment, or you can hire women. Uh, so we've got uh, a great push with American companies, uh, uh, Johnson Controls in Jetta, the General Motors dealership in Jetta, GE Engines out in Iran. Uh, I mentioned uh, 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 Alcoa. These companies are all coming in as a part of the theater design of their program uh, is centered around the hiring of professional Saudis and the hiring of women. And again, it's something that we bring because we're comfortable in that environment. And as soon as you understand the rules and set it up that way, it's easily defendable. And then, oh, by the way, as Parsons Engineering has figured out, you get the pick of the litter. The motivated ones, the dedicated ones, the smart ones, the creative ones. So the companies that have figured this out are making great inroads, and it's exciting to watch. It's a magnificent young generation. They're excited, they're connected, they're educated, they're motivated, and they want to do something for their country. So we ought to take advantage of that. Yes, I, I commend, as, as you do, Parsons uh, Engineering, which has been a pioneer from the beginning. And uh, the way in which that relationship began is, shows him much the personal touch uh, matters. 
1945 when the United Nations was being uh, founded and the meetings were being held in San Francisco, uh, th three of Saudi Arabia's uh, ruling family members uh, were at those uh, proceedings. And on the weekends, uh, Parsons uh, Engineering Corporation, based in California, would take uh, the Saudi Arabian delegations to uh, its uh, construction sites and its infrastructure achievements. And over the course of the time of doing this together, the Saudi Arabians uh, asked, might you come to our country and show us how to build these kinds of things because we need them and we need a partnership with people like you. Something as basic as that, informal, person to person, and led to this relationship, first of comfort, first of habit, uh, and, and routine and regimen, and from that uh, to trust and to confidence and to mutuality of, uh, of, of benefit. I left out two of the categories where uh, the opportunities are the same, uh, but perhaps in some cases even greater, namely pharmaceutical companies and uh, law firms. Uh, the, one of the pharmaceutical firms um, told me it would be willing to take 40 Saudi Arabians uh, over a period of four years, 10 a year, uh, to give them internship trainings in their headquarters. And the theory was that out of the 40, within the next decade, perhaps one, perhaps two, perhaps three, but even if only one would have signature authority, for procurement, for design, for engineering, for construction uh, of a venture uh, that stemmed from that initial internship here in the United States before the students uh, went back home. The same thing for law firms uh, there in terms of drafting and the language and the specificity of attention to detail and the exactitude and precision of the use of language in contracts. Uh, this kind of trust and confidence can be built before the Saudi Arabians return to the kingdom. Uh, so I commend the ambassador for taking this um, idea and, and building upon it and refining it and strengthening it and expanding it. Both sides have won in the process. We thank the ambassador uh, for this. I'll ask one last question, and then we'll, we'll uh, proceed to the next uh, session. And that is uh, the range of what you hear from Saudi Arabians about America's handling, quote unquote, of the issues pertaining to Iran and the Israeli dynamic uh, within uh, this dynamic. The, the range of Saudi Arabian concerns or the prioritization of Saudi Arabian concerns so that we hear from you and others more than we hear from the American media, their concerns, their needs, their issues, their interests, their objectives? Well, it's key that you listen to all sides. Uh, and the, the, the street in that part of the world has long been convinced that we don't listen to the other side of the story. Uh, the challenge, of course, is translating that into an executable policy. Uh, uh, but certainly uh, in Saudi Arabia, there's a, you know, it's interesting that in three years, I have never heard a disparaging word 
against an Israeli or a Jew. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is the government-to-government -government policy, which, on, uh, again, on the street, uh, is perceived as being imbalanced. Uh, in, in 2002, uh, Crown Prince Abdullah uh, spent a lot of capital uh, pulling 42 countries together in what's called the Arab Peace Initiative and essentially laid out if, if, if you can just resolve these issues, all 42 countries are on board to open up relations uh, with Israel uh, because there's a deep sense in our part of the world that the resolution uh, of the conflict is, is the key and enduring challenge. Uh, and it is a strategic issue for Saudi Arabia just like it is for the United States. Because in the absence of a settlement, every extremist group gets to use the Palestinian issue to its advantage, even though not one of them has ever given a dime to a Palestinian to help their plight. Uh, it puts, for the United States, us at strategic risk and Americans at risk. So uh, I would not speak for King Abdullah, but I would say that uh, the Arab Peace Initiative is a great place to start. And under his leadership, he's got that part of the world lined up to move forward with a settlement, if, in fact, that is to be our destiny. With regard to Iran. Well, Iran is a great challenge. Uh, now, Saudi Arabia looks at Iran a little differently than uh, uh, traditional uh, American thinking. We, we look at threats as being outside threats uh, facing the Saudis. When you word, use the word threat, it's inside out. Uh, and Saudi Arabia, in its role as the custodian of the two holy mosques and the keepers, of the holy places of Islam, and you have to understand that last week during uh, Ramadan, or during the Hajj, the whole government shut down. The whole government of Saudi Arabia shut down to support the three and a half million pil pilgrims that were coming to uh, uh, Mecca and Medina. This is 200 Super Bowls four days in a row. Okay. That's, that's what they do. And they're, they're, as a government, deeply committed to uh, ensuring that every Muslim in the world, when they come for their re religious responsibility, can satisfy that without interference, without pressure, without political interference. That's their role in that religion. In Iran, they see a... Uh, uh, a challenge to the, the legitimacy of the oversight of that. It's a governance issue. It's not a Sunni-Shia issue. Uh, and with um, Iran's government, they, they see essentially death by a thousand razor cuts as uh, Iran has a coherent strategy for destabilization in the region, uh, starting in, in uh, Baghdad, extends to Damascus, the support of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood in uh, uh, Yemen, uh, Bahrain, uh, the Eastern Province, wherever they can take an, a, a, an issue and turn it into a sectarian issue, that is the strategy that they see that Iran is pursuing. So Iran is a very real threat to them. Uh, uh, it's an, the existential threat in the region.
Thank you, Mr. Ambassador, uh, for enlightening us uh, in this opening session of the second day of this 21st uh, annual conference uh, on Arab-U.S. Uh, policy issues. I'm going to